Welcome back to Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar, a new podcast that tackles sex and reproductive health unapologetically, presented by Anna Vera. I'm Francesca Ramsey, and this week we are tackling all of those embarrassing questions that we might have and we're afraid to ask. But thankfully, we're doing it here because usually the stuff that we're worried about is way more common than we think. So let's get into it. This episode of Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar is presented by Anavera, Suggesterone Acetate and Ethanol Estradiol Vaginal System. I've never smelled a vagina with a normal odor and thought, oh my gosh, it doesn't smell like citrus or lavender. Mm. Something's wrong. <laughs> Some people say that women are a mystery, and it really can feel that way, especially when you have questions about how your body works. But we shouldn't need a crystal ball to get answers, especially when it comes to our health. Enter Dr. Jessica Gaida. As an OBGYN and reproductive health specialist, topics like painful sex or discharge are far from taboo. In fact, she wishes more women would come right out and ask her those questions about their bodies. So today, we are going to get real talking about our vaginas. Welcome, Dr. Gaida. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, thank you so much. We have so many questions to jump into. And I think the first one is just what are some of the most common things that you hear from women about their vaginas? That's such a great question. There's a few that just come to mind. The first one is, is my discharge normal? Mm-hmm. Should I shower or groom down there prior to coming to see you in the office? Okay. Do I have to cancel my appointment if I'm on my period? Oh, that I – I mean, I would. <laughs> do, do people – should people cancel their appointment? Not necessarily. It oh. depends on like your level of comfort and then how much you're bleeding. Mm-hmm. So if – you know, if you're soaking through a tampon, you're on those first few heavy days or a pad, I would probably reschedule. But if it's like the first day or towards the end and it's just a little spotting, totally fine to still come see us. Oh, okay. Um, what else? Other ones, uh, what if sex or a speculum exam are painful? As in mm-hmm. like, do you have to have a speculum exam every year? And the speculum is like the little – it looks like a clamp, but like a reverse right. clamp. Like exactly. Like the other direction. Yes, it goes in and then we use it to expand the walls of the vagina to see your cervix. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to have a speculum exam every year. And certainly if – you're younger than 21, there's actually no good reason to do a speculum exam unless you are having issues. Mm -hmm. Um, We can test for infection. We can test the urine for infection or do a blind swab in the vagina uh, without ever having to insert that speculum and therefore risk traumatizing you (laughs) and Mm -hmm. making you never want to come see us again. Let's see. Another question was, when should I start seeing the gynecologist? Mm Mm-hmm. Really, any time that you become sexually active and you're interested in or prior and you're interested in talking about contraception, you can come see us. Again, we don't have to do any type of exam. It can just be a talking visit. Oh, that's really good to know because I feel like the first time that I went, I was so stressed about like the actual exam. And I think just being there and not having an exam and like talking to your doctor to like get familiar with them and also like the space would probably be such a smart way to ease yourself into actually getting the exam. 
Right. And I, I totally feel that way too. And you can even come in and say like, tell me what this whole speculum exam is all about and we can run you through it and then do it in like a year and give you time to kind of comprehend. Oh, that's so smart. I truly, I mean, I was really fortunate. I had a great first OBGYN experience and I've had positive ones since, but that's such a great thing for anybody who's stressed and worried about going and has never gone or someone who hasn't gone in a long time. I mean, I think that might also be uh, an area where someone's worried, uh, like the fear of the unknown, like right. maybe something's wrong with me and I haven't been in a long time. And just going in and saying like, what's this process going to be? Like, let's talk through it first is right. really crucial. Yeah. Let's take that unknown out of it. What are some other common questions sure. that you get? What's a pap smear versus that speculum exam? So every visit that you have, we may or may not do that speculum exam and we may or may not do a pap smear. So the pap smear screens for abnormal cells on the cervix and it screens for that HPV virus, the mm -hmm. human papilloma virus. Um, and depending on the results of that, the cells and the virus, we would screen every three to five years. Um, so it used to be you'd get a pap smear every year, especially like my mom's generation. They'll come in and ask um, if they need it every year. And a big thing uh, that I've been finding is just kind of re-educating on what the uh, protocols for that are now. I'm really glad to hear that people feel comfortable enough to even ask you those questions because it seems like there's truly a lot of insecurity and discomfort around asking these questions. Um, why do you think so many of us either don't know the answers to these questions or feel hesitant to ask them? I think a lot of it comes to how society kind of portrays what a woman or even a vagina should be. Mm -hmm. There's a long history of kind of a patriarchal society telling women, whether consciously or unconsciously, that vaginas and thereby just having one makes you dirty and unclean yeah. and less than. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think even just like the word vagina, I feel like there's so many euphemisms and even like the way that people use it to say like you're weak or you're less than or to kind of like put down a man. I think all of those things end up influencing how we think about our own bodies, um, which is of course why conversations like these are so important. Um, what are some normal bodily functions that a lot of women are embarrassed to talk about or assume something might be wrong with them because of them. Yeah. And so I want to preface that the female body is just a wonderful, beautiful, strong, <laughs> empowered organism. I fully yeah. believe that um, with like every essence of my being. But there are definitely some things that are normal 100% of the time that we're just embarrassed to talk about or even bring up like you were saying. Yeah. And some of those are growing pubic hair, a mm -hmm. normal kind Which of- is, Really? Right? That's so weird. I think most people think they need to shave or wax or just be completely bare down there, even when they come to see me in the office. No. And, right? Not oh my gosh. I got waxed one time and it was truly so painful. I was like, never again. Nobody I, is worth this. Like, I no. don't care who you are or what your uh, your requests are. They're all being denied. <laughs> You're right? going to get what I give you and it will exactly. not be <laughs> Exactly. And I, I tell patients when they feel uncomfortable with it, I go, I didn't shave for you. So you have to. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that is <It's> true. so <laughs> funny. 
I, oh my gosh, anyone that's listening that's a gynecologist, (laughs) please start saying that. I would cry laughing if my doctor said that to me. Right. I feel like it totally breaks the tension, but it's also 100% true. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Is there anything else that people come in thinking like they should have done or they're concerned about? I do feel like um, there's a good amount of stigma surrounding discharge and then Mm -hmm. an odor coming from the groin area, Mm -hmm. which is very, very common and not necessarily always something to be concerned about. So in general, discharge is normal. The normal amount's about one to three uh, milliliters or cc's a a day. And Mm -hmm. so that's about like one panty liner full of discharge. Mm -hmm. Times that it's a good idea to seek medical attention would be if your discharge is ever bothersome to you, if it has an association with itching or burning or bleeding, a fishy odor, or just Mm -hmm. a change in odor all of a sudden, if it's chunky or cottage cheese-like, and then if it's like green or yellow, kind of like when you have a sinus infection. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's fairly safe to assume that if it doesn't meet any of those, it's most likely normal discharge that's going on. Okay. I mean, I think that that's a a great segue into the next question. What's normal in terms of odor? I mean, I think we've all kind of been misled to believe, like I think of all these commercials that I would see where it's like flowers coming out of the the sheets. It's like, oh my gosh, is something wrong with me if my vagina doesn't smell like a bouquet of flowers? Right. I mean, does that sound credible? (laughs) It's a body, not a garden. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So what is considered normal in terms of smell? And is there a moment where you should be concerned about smell? Absolutely. So um, some odor is, of course, normal. um, And sometimes it's worrisome for concern. But like you were saying, I've never smelled a vagina with a normal odor and thought, oh my gosh, it doesn't smell like citrus or lavender. Mm. Something's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Never, not once. (laughs) I'm smelling hints of cinnamon and um... spice. (laughs) Yeah, no. I think I would be worried if those were the scents that were happening, like I, like an I would also ninety dollar candle in my vagina, <laughs> right? There's not supposed to be like that, and it's totally normal. So you have these glands called apocrine sweat glands, mm-hmm. and they exist in the armpits, the groin, and the breasts. So if you think of how your underarm smells, which I'm sure none of us think about regularly, mm-hmm. um, but if you were to take a sniff after not wearing any deodorant, that's equivalent to the type of smell you can expect to come from the groin, especially after like a strenuous activity or mm-hmm being outside in the sun all day. Okay, that makes sense. I'm going to up our conversation with our signature game of two truths and a lie. Do you know how to play this game? I do. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. First one. I am the only one of my friends that actually loved the Game of Thrones series finale. Oh, I hope that's that's a truth. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Next one. The one and only time I've ever been arrested was in high school for stealing a deck of tarot cards. <laughs> and then the last one is, I drunkenly threw myself at John Ham at a 4th of July party. Oh, these are good. <laughs> and two are true, huh? Two of them are true. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say number two, the tarot cards. Is the lie? Is the lie. No, you are incorrect. Oh. 
Wait, you are oh. incorrect. Uh, not only Got did I get me. arrested for stealing tarot ah. cards, but the cop said to me, bet you didn't see that in your future. Oh. And I was <laughs> heartbroken. I was like, oh. you are a way to make the worst day of my life even worse because he just – he thought it was hilarious. That- I will give you one more guess. Okay. Huh. Um, the last one sounds too specific to be mm. to be fake, but you mm. could be tricking me. Mm. I'm going to – all right, I'm gonna go the last one. Fourth of July party. Oh, that's also oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good at this game. Oh my no, you know what? Let's let's speak positively. I'm just I'm, really good at crafting. You're very these. that's true. See, your positive vibes yes. are already you're reframing my mindset. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. No, I I did throw myself at John Ham. Uh, he looked at me like, what is wrong with you? I was just like, hey John Ham, I'm a really big fan. And he was like, get in line, girl. What is wrong? you. Um, no, I hated the Game of Thrones uh, oh. series finale. I was very upset about it. I'm st- I'm still upset about it. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those slights I'm never going to get over. Right. Um, and so if the Game of Thrones guys are listening, just know I'm still really angry at you. Yeah, and- we'd, we'd take an alternative ending. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. You know, could we just go back in time and fix that one ending? Just I know. Truly would just make things better for me. <laughs> um, listen, this was so great. Do you want to give Two Truths and a Lie a, a shot? I just yeah. want to put you on the spot, but – I'm down to guess if you are willing to give me three statements about yeah, yourself. Yeah, let's do it. So I, okay. I, when I thought of them, I kept it all relevant to the podcast. Okay, I love <laughs> it. Yes. Um, all right. Number one, I've tried five different types of birth control in my lifetime. Mm, okay. Number two, the first vaginal delivery I ever saw was a water birth in Ecuador. Ooh. And number three, I didn't know you could pee with a tampon in until I was in college. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna. Okay, I'm gonna use my powers of deduction. You inspired me. Uh, <laughs> the Ecuador one sounds so specific that I'm gonna say that one is true. I'm oh. gonna <laughs> say, you know what? I'm gonna say the peeing with the tampon is true, and I'm gonna say the five different birth controls is a lie. Oh, you got it. I was struggling so hard to come up with the the lie. I was like, my truths are easy. Oh my gosh. A a water birth in Ecuador. Were you there for, is this like part of your residency or what? So I went there in college as a sophomore just to kind of get experience. And my host mom um, is and, or was and still is an OBGYN there. And she sent me to this like fancy clinic there. And the first baby I ever saw, the mom delivered in a bathtub and then out came the placenta afterwards. And mind you, I was like 20 years old. I was like, what is that thing that comes out after the baby? (laughs) No one told me about this. Oh my gosh. Well, what, I mean, what a safe space. You got to see it and then ask the question right there. I mean, it was. It was oh my great. gosh, that's so – and then, you know what? I got to commend you. I appreciate your honesty about the peeing with the tampon. That is so funny. But also, again, you were probably not the first person to think right? that. I, I was going through tampons like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. But that oh that's the – you know, like why wasn't I ever taught that, you know? It well, just- I mean, let's be real. A lot of people don't know that those are two different places. They're, no. they're in close proximity. They're neighbors, close. but they are, they are very not close neighbors. The, they're not the same place. <laughs> no. And it's just, you know, it's so important. We have to teach people that. Yeah. <laughs>
You mentioned HPV. I feel like that's this like big scary acronym that is right. like hanging <laughs> over people's shoulders. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because um, you know, I think when someone hears any acronym associated with their reproductive health, our minds automatically go to the worst case scenario and think like something's wrong, I'm gonna die, this is right. so bad. Um, and in reality, I think, at least in, in my experience, because I had HPV and uh, many I'm women fine. Do. I'm fine. I'm <laughs> <Right>. here. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> I'm happy. Good to go. <laughs> um, so, if someone is told they have HPV, what, what should they what should they like know about it? Um, and and what is the best way to move forward from it? Before we get into that, here's a quick note from our sponsor. It's time to demand more from your birth control and take control of our reproductive health. Anavera is a first of its kind vaginal ring that lasts an entire year. For each cycle, Anavera is inserted and left in place for 21 continuous days and then removed for seven days. That means no more remembering to take pills every day, no procedures, just long-lasting birth control that puts you in control. Keep listening for important risk information about Anavera, including a boxed warning about smoking and cardiovascular risks. So... You are not alone in having HPV. Um, very common. It's actually the most common sexually transmitted infection. Um, one in four people will be diagnosed with it. So HPV or human papillomavirus, uh, the way I explain it to people and the way I think about it, it's kind of like the common cold that your mm. cervix can get. And so there's, you can get a cold, you know, in October and then get another cold in December. Mm -hmm. And that virus has just changed a little bit so that it can come back and infect you and make you feel sick again. The same with HPV. There's 16, 18, 30, 31. There's so many different strains of it that exist. Um, And so your body, just like the common cold, it can work and kind of get rid of the virus on its own without any medications, um, anything like that. So if you have HPV that shows up on a pap smear test one year, we would rescreen you in the next year, depending on that strain. If it's Mm -hmm. a higher risk strain, we do something called a colposcopy where we take a look at the cervix. Um, But most of the time, your body's going to clear that infection on its own. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that was most surprising is that I didn't see any change in my, like nothing happened. I wasn't going to the doctor because I was worried or uh, I was, you know, something unusual happened. Uh, I was just going to get a regular pap and that's when I found out. And again, thankfully my doctor was just like, yeah, this is really not a big deal. And I'm like, well, if you're fine, then I'm fine. Exactly. Um, But I think again- people assume that that must mean something terrible. And I think the common cold explanation is really, really smart. Yeah, it's a a good one. And, you know, that's why we say to come every year, even if nothing's going on, it feels like a waste of time to come talk to us. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still just better for somebody to chat with you. If we have to do an exam, do an exam and kind of go from there because HPV in the short run, not going to cause any issues. HPV, if it persists for, you know, 10 years or so, can cause um, some issues. So it's better just to find out and monitor it from there. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was just about people being worried about pain. Um, Is it normal if you are having sex and it feels painful? I mean, I I would assume that that's a red flag and something that you want to 
watch out for, but I also acknowledge that everyone's body is different. And so their feelings and experiences are going to be different. But what's your recommendation when it comes to folks that are saying they're feeling pain while having sex? I think 100% of the time that is not normal. Mm -hmm. Sex should be enjoyable. It should be pleasurable for all parties involved. And if you're Mm -hmm. having pain, always good idea to bring it up to your OBGYN or provider. Okay. Are there any other specific solutions aside from speaking to your OBGYN about it? Is there something else that you should be thinking about or doing if that's the case for you? Yeah, definitely. So there's a ton of different kind of reasons that we can have pain with sex. Some of the common ones that come to mind for me are just low estrogen. So if you're on a type of uh, contraceptive that doesn't have estrogen in it, that could cause Mm -hmm. um, some vaginal dryness and then therefore pain with intercourse. Um, Infections muscle spasms, scar tissues from a vaginal delivery um, Mm -hmm. or repair afterwards, some skin issues, the bladder can cause pain with intercourse, endometriosis, and then there's always uh, considering mechanical techniques or you and your partner kind of aligning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we talked about the fact that historically we've been told all these messages about our bodies and and that's why a lot of times women are hesitant or feel embarrassed to talk about what's going on with their bodies. Societally, what do you think we could be doing differently to kind of help more women feel at ease when it comes to talking about their vaginas and and their reproductive health? I think even just starting with conversations like these, making it the norm to talk about pain with sex, lubrication with sex, bleeding or tampon use with your period. I mean, all of these things, I don't know why they're so hush-hush. At least for me, they were growing up. And that's just one of my goals is to make it much more out there. Yeah. And you know, when we talk about all of these misconceptions and we need to have these conversations, I think we all also have to remember that it's okay not to not know things. Like it's okay to just say like, this is a question that I have and I feel uncomfortable about it or I don't know the answer to it. And just being open and honest, I feel like for me, at least especially with this podcast, has been really helpful and eye-opening and just creating a safe space for these conversations, especially with your doctor. Like your doctor has heard these things before. You're not going to surprise them. (laughs) Never. I have yet to be surprised. And I'll be honest, when I am surprised, I usually just say, I haven't heard that question. Let me go look it up. But it's a totally Mm -hmm. normal question to ask. Um, I think, you know, if your doctor doesn't take the time to educate you on your body and normal functions or listen when you have a concerns um, about your body, it's time to get a new doctor. Ooh, yes. I love that. And I think that's really important to point out because doctors are human. They're not infallible. Um, And sometimes you might get somebody who is not the right fit for you and doesn't necessarily make you feel like you want to be completely honest and transparent and ask those questions. And so you should absolutely do whatever's in your power to find the right doctor who's going to make you feel comfortable and facilitate those conversations. And and I mean, you know, it doesn't mean your doctor's not a good one. It just means you don't jive with them. And so time to move on to the next. Yes. I love that. That's a really important point. So let's talk about the uterus. Sometimes, you know, someone's might be tilted sideways or backwards. What is happening and does that affect the body or fertility in any way? 
That's such a good question. So there's all different types of anatomic variants that can exist for the position of your uterus. And I think one of the caveats to people doing more and learning more about their bodies is that now we need to move on from just knowing the correct terms to knowing what's normal and what's not normal. So your uterus can tilt forward, it can tilt back, it can go to the side. None of that is abnormal. It's just your normal anatomy. That makes sense. And so how does that, if at all, impact fertility? Because I'm sure that that's something a lot of women are worried about. Definitely. The normal kind of tilt of your uterus shouldn't impact your fertility at all. Where that comes into kind of consideration is for your OBGYN or healthcare provider to find your cervix. So sometimes, and I know it happens to me, I'll tell a patient I need them to scoot down farther or put their hands under their bottom just so I can reach their cervix. And it may just be because the uterus is pointed one way or another. It makes the speculum exam a little more painful, but shouldn't Mm -hmm. impact fertility at all. Mm, Okay. And so, you know, it doesn't impact fertility, but what about when it's time to actually give birth? Is that something that you need to think about or need to make sure that when you go to the hospital to give birth or maybe you're doing a home birth, you know, there's so many different options right right now. Do you need to be aware of that in the birthing process? No. So that's, I mean, it's such a great question because you, you would think yes, but as the uterus grows to accommodate that growing pregnancy, that position that it's kind of tilted in just tends to even out and fill Mm. in whatever space that you have. The caveat to that would be if you had a specific like uterine anomaly. So we know there's heart-shaped uteruses or one-side uteruses where the other horn doesn't develop those could impact the birthing process, but they're fairly rare. And um, your OBGYN would know about that beforehand. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, you know, it's interesting because there are so many options when it comes to deciding to give birth. And, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and I'm sure there are lots of people who are like, I don't want to go near a hospital right now. I would rather have my baby at home. If if that's something that someone is thinking about, what are some of the things that they should be considering? Because it's a pretty big decision, you know, like it is. giving birth and bringing a child into the world is is huge. But to do that, you know, without some of the things that you're going to have at a hospital, I could imagine that would be really scary. But and- also, I'm sure, you know, if you have other kids or you have your partner there, especially again with the pandemic, there's so many stipulations for giving birth in the hospital. What do women need to think about if they're deciding that they want to have a baby at home? I think it's really important to understand the reasoning behind that. So at at the end of the day, your OBGYN or healthcare provider, our goal is just to tell you the risks and benefits of everything and then give you all of the information so that you can make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. It could just be because I've been around the block a little bit, but as a an OBGYN, I tend to focus on the outcomes that aren't so great. And so the worst thing in the world that can happen is for a mom to have a healthy baby and then have something go wrong during labor, whether it's at home or the hospital. That being said, at least if you're at the hospital, there are interventions that we can take to give you and your baby the best chance. Mm -hmm. I'm not against home birth. I just think it needs to be done in the right way that everybody's safe and is working within their own training limitations. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, oh, I just it's, I just yeah. am thinking about like I have a friend that gave birth and she did end up going to the hospital, but I know she was really 
stressed about it as yeah. I could imagine, you know, without everything happening in the world, it's a little scary oh, definitely. And, and stressful. And now especially is a time that I think everyone is trying to be extra careful and extra mindful. And um, I do think to your point, just like doing your research and making sure that you have the right team around you, whether it be at home or in the hospital is really important. Right. And just, you know, finding out what the protocol is if something changes like midway through, if you're doing a home birth and all of a sudden it turns out the baby's breech, that's not Mm -hmm. recommended to do a vaginal delivery. So Mm -hmm. is the provider going to come to the hospital with you? What hospital are they going to transfer you to? How will you get there? In what time will that happen? Who's the accepting physician? There's just a mm-hmm. lot of questions and not that and all of these things can be worked out beforehand. It's just like having that in place before you need it. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is a big one and I feel like there are so many so much misinformation around what happens to your vagina after you give birth. Um, Definitely. <laughs> and again, it's 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 always framed in this like very negative, shamey way. Like you hear it in movies or in, you know, comedy specials where people are just like, oh yeah, you're gonna have like this super loose vagina after you have a baby. And I wanna know once and for all, is that true? What actually happens? So the normal vaginal length is anywhere from 5 to 14 centimeters. So that varies a ton. Um, What happens, and just a little backstory for you, Mm -hmm. the vagina has these special kind of folds and ridges called uh, rugae. And so it's kind of like a crinkled up piece of paper. And Mm -hmm. so it can stretch to be that really kind of smooth paper where the vagina elongates, and that happens during the childbirth process. Mm -hmm. Or it can shrink back down to be that crumpled up kind of ball of paper um, with all of those ridges in there. And so during a vaginal delivery, the vagina expands to allow us to birth a human being. (laughs) (laughs) And afterwards, over the next 6 to 12 weeks, it's going to kind of go back and reform into what it was previously. It can be a little bit looser afterwards. There can be pain with intercourse, especially the first time. And that's mostly just if there was scar tissue or a bad tear. There can also be some leaking with urine or um, leaking of stool, which is embarrassing, but very common. Yeah. And so if you're having issues in that postpartum period, super important. Again, your doctor or provider will ask you, but also to be okay to bring it up. Mm -hmm. And we have interventions like Kegel exercises and pelvic floor physical therapists, as well as surgical interventions and medications and things. But those are first line to kind of help uh, get you back to where you were, if not better. For the first time in my adult life, I'm hearing so many more of my friends and just like in popular culture conversations about fertility. And I feel like when I was growing up, it was just like, yeah, you want to have a baby, you get pregnant and you have a baby. And now I'm I'm 36 and I'm just realizing or understanding like it's not like that for everybody. Right. Like fertility is not something that's just like a one size fits all. Um What are some common questions that you've found that women are afraid to ask when it comes to fertility? I think the big thing everyone's scared to ask, myself too, I I don't have kids yet, um, Mm -hmm. is am I fertile? Am I going to be able to get pregnant? Mm -hmm. That's definitely the big one. Um, There's other ones including like how does fertility work? If being on uh, birth control is going to affect your fertility long term. Mm -hmm. 
if you have a sexually transmitted infection in the past, will that make you infertile? And how does that process work? How long to try before consulting an expert? And then just, you know, talking about the anxiety provoking process, like even thinking about needing fertility treatments kind of invokes on us. Yeah. And so how do you even find out if you're fertile or not? I would think most people would think like, oh, well, I'm having my period. I'm probably fine. Is that linked to our fertility? And like, is there something that we should be doing to find out if we're fertile? Like what? Right. It's so weird because you spend like a large portion of your life trying to prevent pregnancy. And then all of a sudden you're like, now I'm ready. And (laughs) is my body... Um, So the way fertility works, it's largely based on your age and the number and quality of eggs that you have. So when you're born, you're actually born with all of the eggs that you'll ever have in your entire lifetime. Mm. Right? Crazy. That's I I had not thought of that. Yeah. And so as opposed to um, men who kind of recreate sperm every uh, so often. So as we age, our number and quality decline. And that first decline happens around age 32, and then the bigger one around age 35. And so in general, if you're having a period every month, at least every 21 to 35 days, you are ovulating and things are going um, in the right direction that you should be able to conceive. Mm-hmm. If you're older than 35 and you've been trying for six months without any success, um, it's time to talk to a professional. Younger than 35, we say wait up to an entire year of trying with unprotected intercourse with your partner before going in for an evaluation. And I'm going to just like speculate here, but correct me if I'm wrong. Are they actually going to look at how many eggs are coming out to determine your fertility rate? Is that correct? There's a few different things that they'll look at to kind of see. There is a hormone called AMH or anti-mullerian hormone that's gotten maybe a little more popularized now. It really has a place in the REI or reproductive endocrinology and infertility world on the success of pregnancy with IVF, Mm -hmm. but we can't yet place that in the general population. Okay. If that it's a little confusing. Okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You're I like, what? I believe you. So, yeah. so there's there are some hormone levels that we can measure um, mm-hmm. and certain things to rule out, like PCOS, any anomalies of the uterine cavity, like fibroids or polyps, and are the tubes working and open? And those are tests that either your gynecologist or a REI expert could do. But there's no great test to say, like, this is your percent chance of being fertile. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I have a a really good friend who ended up doing egg freezing, and it was so surprising. Again, I had really not heard about egg freezing until I I feel like suddenly everyone was freezing their eggs. Also, there's a pandemic, so I feel like a lot of women were like, I got to figure this out and put these babies on ice. My friend friend froze her eggs, but like it was a real, it it was a real challenge for her because she just wasn't getting very many eggs every time. And it was really, she had to do multiple rounds and it was, you know, I guess just a reminder or an eye-opening thing for me to witness to see like, oh, everybody's body responds to this very differently. There's just not one approach that works for everyone. Right. It is so different. And, you know, it could even different between like sisters from the same Mm. family can have different journeys to getting that family that they want. And I think it's just that unknown that really kind of freaks us all out and scares us. But you know, if there's ever any questions about it, it's 
never a bad idea just to go in and make that appointment with your doctor and say like, hey, these are my concerns. Or even what you said, my friend just went through freezing her eggs and it was a really mm-hmm. hard time. Like, is that going to affect me? Because we always bring it back to ourselves. That's that's just yeah. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I mean, that's for real. That's what happened with me because I had thought about it. And then just watching her go through it, I was just like, I I don't know if this is right for me. Like, I mean, I, I, I would love to have kids someday and I hope that I'm blessed enough to have them. But watching her journey and a few other friends, I was just like, I don't know if I want to pump myself full of hormones and cry every day because I right. already cry a lot. Right. <laughs> I'm I know. a crier. 2020 has been hard enough without putting like, that on yourself. Oh my God. And having to like give yourself a shot and then pay rent on these eggs. I was like, it's- I'm already have to remind myself to pay the rent for the home I live in right? and to pay rent on eggs. I just don't know. It's so expensive. It's just mind-blowingly expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all things um, you have to think about and it can be really overwhelming. But again, how wonderful to have a safe space to ask your doctor about it, judgment-free, rather than getting misinformation elsewhere. Definitely. And so, you know, we've talked about all of these misconceptions and and how oftentimes we feel worried or embarrassed to ask these questions. What are some ways that you believe that women can begin to feel comfortable and, and empowered when it comes to talking about their bodies and their reproductive health? Um, I love this question. Um, I, I totally agree. I think knowledge is power. So just asking questions, nothing's off limits, um, and using reputable sources. And then um, self-exploration is one of my favorite things to recommend to people. Mm-hmm. Get a mirror, stick it down there, you, you know, see yes. what you see. <laughs> you know, feel, feel what feels good for you, feel what feels bad for you, um, mm-hmm. figure out what your body likes, and then let's go out and talk about it. And you don't have to be specific to yourself, but, you know, let's break down these stigmas and kind of um, stop internalizing these bad norms that are in society and instead embrace those good ones and make it um, fun and exciting to talk about with friends. Yeah. No, I mean, I have to admit for such a long time, I was so hesitant to talk about anything. And I think a lot of it came from my own insecurity and inexperience. Yeah. Um, and to your point about like actually getting to know your body is so important because um, we all are like going through our own challenges and our own experiences. And more oftentimes than not, what you're dealing with is not unique to you. Like you're not the first person. You're not going to be the last person. There's somebody out there, probably closer than you think, that has right. had your experience. And there is such like a, a weight off of your shoulders when you talk to your doctor or you talk to one of your friends and you're like, oh my God, that happened to you too? Okay. I right. thought something was wrong with me. hundred <laughs> totally normal. <laughs> yeah. And then you just all – exactly. That weight is such a good description. It feels like all of a sudden it's released and then you're like giggling about it and you're like, why mm-hmm. was I worried about that in the first place? Yeah. You're like, we should – we could have been talking about vaginas a long time ago. Right. Is, like, what am I doing? <laughs> I know. We've missed out on this like key late night. <laughs> topic. (laughs) We have so much catching up to do. I know. Um, It's so true. (laughs) What are some questions that you wish more women would ask when it comes to birth control? Um, 
you know, there's so many questions to ask. I think the biggest one for me would ask for time with your provider for an official birth control content or excuse mm-hmm. me, consult. Mm-hmm. So there's so much on the, on the web, on Instagram, on TikTok. I mean, like everyone has an opinion about birth control. Um, right get the facts from somebody that is trained, that knows all of the side effects, knows the hormones and tailors that advice specifically for you Mm -hmm. would be my best kind of tip. And it's great to just say like, let's do a, and a lot of providers are doing telemedicine right now too. And you can schedule a 15 minute appointment, you know, figure it out in 10 minutes, go home with some information and then, or you're at home already. Um, (laughs) And then call back and let us know what you want. Oh my gosh, that's that's so great. I mean, you know, I feel like the pandemic is one of these moments where we're all reassessing things about our lives and our futures and the prevalence of now telecommunication is one of those things that I really hope continues because there are so many people who might not feel comfortable going to the OBGYN. Um, Maybe you don't drive. Maybe you're a person with a disability. Maybe you Mm -hmm. live an hour away from the OBGYN and you don't want to get in the car. You don't have gas or whatever it is. And so the convenience to be able to do it from home or on your phone or on your computer is just like really, really wonderful um, and something that I hope continues once we are inevitably past this challenging time. I, <laughs> I, I think it'll. Existence. I know. I think it'll stay. I think we've had, like as a society, we've realized now like you can work effectively via tele whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, why go back? <laughs> yeah. And it's very convenient and it uh, makes things more accessible for people. And that, especially when it comes to healthcare, is a world that I want to be in where it is easier for people to get uh, the help that they need, but also to be able to communicate with the professional um, so that they can be, to your point, informed about their body and what they do with it. Yeah, I love that. That is a world I want to live in too. Oh, yes. I love – listen, I've only been in LA a few weeks and the woo is taking over me. I am becoming <laughs> someone who speaks in positive affirmations and I hopes that they just go into the universe and then oh, come I to me. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I feel like I would fit in in LA. I'm in oh Pennsylvania. We don't do that, but I do that to myself. <laughs> Let me tell you, I was a cynic. I, I was very much hesitant to the woo and, and it's just, <laughs> they, they start to break you down. <laughs> it sounds um, like a good, a good breaking down though. <laughs> a good yes. one. It is it is a positive thing. I feel better for it. Thank you so much for indulging me with all of these questions and just for being so thoughtful in your answers. I feel like I got some education and hopefully our audience did too. Um, so thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Subscribe to Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Full Disclosure by Pop Sugar is presented by Anavera the only long-lasting reversible birth control that is procedure-free and controlled by women. Keep listening for important risk information about Anavera, including a boxed warning about smoking and cardiovascular risks. Do not use Anavera, Suggesterone acetate, and ethanyl estradiol vaginal system if you smoke cigarettes and are over 35 years old. Smoking increases your risk of serious heart and blood vessel cardiovascular side effects from hormonal birth control methods, including death from heart attack, blood clots, or stroke. This risk increases with age and the number of cigarettes you smoke. Anavera does not protect against HIV infection. 
AIDS, and other sexually transmitted infections. The use of a combination hormonal contraceptive, or CHC, like Anovera, is associated with increased risks of several serious side effects, including blood clots, stroke, or heart attack. Do not use Anovera if you have a history of these conditions. Have reduced blood flow to your brain, cerebrovascular disease, or reduced blood flow or blockage in any of the arteries that supply blood to your heart, cardiovascular disease, or any condition that makes your blood more likely to clot. The risk of blood clots is highest when you first start using CHCs and when you restart the same or different CHC after not using it for four weeks or more. Enovera is also not for women with high blood pressure that medicine can't control or high blood pressure with blood vessel damage, diabetes and over 35 years old, diabetes with high blood pressure or kidney, eye, nerve or blood vessel damage, diabetes for longer than 20 years, certain kinds of severe migraine headaches, liver disease or liver tumors, breast cancer or any cancer that is sensitive to the female hormones estrogen or progesterone, unexplained vaginal bleeding, are allergic to suggesterone acetate, ethanyl estradiol, or any other ingredients in Anavera, or take any hepatitis C drug combination containing ombidesvir, paratoprevir, ritonavir, with or without disabuvir, as this may increase levels of the liver enzyme alanine aminotransferase in the blood. Anavera can cause serious side effects, including blood clots, toxic shock syndrome, liver problems, including liver tumors, high blood pressure, gallbladder problems, changes in the sugar and fat, cholesterol, and triglyceride levels in your blood, headache, irregular or unusual vaginal bleeding and spotting between your menstrual periods, depression, possible cancer in your cervix, swelling of your skin, especially around your mouth, eyes, and in your throat, angioedema, dark patches of skin on your forehead, cheeks, upper lip and chin, cloasma. Call your healthcare provider or get emergency medical care right away if any of these serious side effects occur. The most common side effects reported and at least 5% of the women who received Anovera were headaches or migraine, nausea or vomiting, vaginal yeast infection, candiasis, lower and upper abdominal pain, painful periods, vaginal discharge, urinary tract infection, breast pain or tenderness, irregular vaginal bleeding, diarrhea, and genital itching. Anovera is a ring-shaped vaginal system with hormones used by females to prevent pregnancy. Anovera has not been adequately studied in females with a body mass index greater than 29 kilograms per meter squared. The risk information provided here is not complete. To learn more, review the Anovera patient information and talk with your healthcare provider or pharmacist. The FDA-approved product labeling, including patient information, can be found at anovera.com forward slash pi dot pdf. You may also report side effects to the FDA at fda.gov forward slash medwatch or by calling 1-800-FDA-1088. You may also report side effects to Therapeutics MD at 1-888-228-0150.